Morning, everybody. Great to see you all here this morning again. A special welcome to you if you're here for the first time, and if you're a visitor, it really is great to have you with us this morning. Now, when I left school, which was way back in 1989 at the age of 16, I know I don't look old enough for that to be true, but it is, sadly, I spent three months living in a caravan, working on a pig farm, mostly pressure-washing pig pens for the summer. And the farm had several really, really big sheds with large pens in it that had uh, each held 15 pigs as they were fattened up, and then they went off ready for slaughter, went to be sausages and bacon on people's plates. And although Gwyn, the farmer that I was working for, used to hose down the pens on a regular basis, they ne- it, it never really got the pens clean. It was only just very much just kind of temporary clean. And so he got me in that summer, as well as doing other things, to give them a proper industrial deep clean with an industrial pressure washer. This thing kind of stripped off layers of pig muck that had been on there for years, one layer at a time. And I, I really found it quite therapeutic. I really enjoyed it. There was a real sense of satisfaction at the end of the job when all these pig pens were completely stripped back to the clean concrete. And it was clean enough almost, almost to eat your dinner off it. Not, maybe not quite, but... The trouble was I had to get right into the pig pens and I had to put on, you know, waterproofs and goggles and all the rest of it. And the water would splash up and by the end of the day, despite all the kind of protective clothing, I would be absolutely soaked, stinking, covered in pig muck and it was just pretty awful. And then every now and again I would forget and instead of breathing out my nose, I'd have my mouth open and then something would splash up and go in my mouth. That, that, that was the bit that I really didn't enjoy a whole load. And so then when I was finished, each day I would go back to my little caravan and get a shower or a bath and try and get all the muck and the filth off me, ready to do it all again the next day. But it was hugely satisfying at the end of the finished product to see these spotlessly clean concrete walls and concrete floors which had been completely clean without a trace of pig muck anywhere. And I'd managed to do what the regular temporary cleaning wasn't capable of doing. Simply hosing down the walls every now and again really didn't do the job. What they needed was an industrial pressure washer, an industrial pressure washing of those pig pens so that they became spotlessly clean so that you could almost eat your dinner off it. And my role in pressure washing those pig pens so that they became spotlessly clean was similar really to what Jesus did when he died on the cross for you and for me. The package of rules and regulations that God had given Moses to give to the people of Israel, which included the Ten Commandments as the kind of headline uh, items, if you like, it, it contained all sorts of rules and provisions for offering animal sacrifices as a means for atoning for dealing with the problem of the people's sins. So that they could be spiritually clean, not physically clean, but spiritually clean in God's eyes. The animals were put to death. The people who had sinned would uh, have an animal put to death by a priest on their behalf. And the death of that animal dealt with or it atoned for the sin of that person. When an animal was sacrificed, it spiritually turned aside God's wrath against the person and turned God's wrath into favor. That's what atonement means. And every time a person committed certain outward sins, they were supposed to go to the temple in Jerusalem. And before that was built, it was the the tabernacle, which was the portable temple in the desert. They had to ask one of the priests to sacrifice an animal on their behalf in their place and make atonement for their sin, deal with their sin. And then once a year, what was called the, the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, which Jews will still celebrate today, the high priest would do the same on behalf of the whole nation, not just one person, but the whole nation this time. 
And the sacrifices he made would make atonement for the sins of the whole people of Israel, the whole nation. And that would mean that they could continue in this special relationship that they had with God. But those daily and annual sacrifices were just like my farmer friend, Gwyn, spraying down his pig pens every now and again. They, they kind of got a little bit cleaner, but they didn't really deal with it. And just as he sprayed the walls and he got the worst off, it didn't really get the walls properly clean. They needed an industrial pressure washer to really deal with them properly. And, and just like my pig pens were spotless when I'd finished with them, so when Jesus came and offered his life on the cross to be a, a substitute sacrifice for you and for me and for the sins of the whole world, he completely cleaned up the lives of those who put their faith and trust in him and washed their sins away completely and utterly. Jesus' death did what thousands, hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of animal sacrifices over the years could never do. And that was completely and utterly remove sin so that people could be spotless and live in a relationship with God, an eternal relationship with him and be clean forever. Now we're working our way through the book of Hebrews here at Regent on a Sunday morning at the moment. And today we're looking at Hebrews chapter 10, the first uh, 18 verses. And it compares and it contrasts the sacrifice of animals in the Old Testament, in the, under the Old Covenant, with the sacrifice of Jesus. And the whole point of the book of Hebrews really is to say to, to people who had become Christians who had been Jews or were Jews, look, don't go back to Judaism. Jesus is the complete fulfillment of all of Judaism. Jesus is infinitely superior to everything you experienced under that old covenant. And with that in mind, let's read uh, Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to read verses 1 to 18. If you've got a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to just to read along with me, or to, to, to follow along with me, rather. Uh, but if you haven't, that's fine. You can just listen as I read it to you. So Hebrews chapter 10, I'm going to read 1 down to 18. This is what it says. The law, that's that package of rules and regulations that God gave to the Jews. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all, and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins, because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. But a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He set aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice, he's made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Verse 1 
talks about the law, and, and it's referring to the law of Moses, this package of rules and regulations that God gave to Moses, which included the instruction to offer animal sacrifices to deal with the sins of individuals. And this is what it says, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. Just like an occasional spray down with a hose couldn't properly deal with my boss's pig pens because they always just needed cleaning again and again. So the sacrifices that God instructed the people of Israel to offer to God under the, the old covenant could never properly and satisfactorily deal with the sins of the people of Israel. Otherwise, if they could have done, and if they did, they, they wouldn't have needed to keep on being offered. The very fact that they had to be offered over and over again was a very public sign of the fact that they were only ever a temporary kind of stopgap solution. People wouldn't have carried on feeling guilty for their sins and needed uh, more and more forgiveness over and over again. The reality was that every year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, when the high priest sacrificed animals to deal with the sin of the whole nation, it was as much a reminder of their sins as it was a means of dealing with them, because the sacrifice of those animals could never really deal with the problem. They couldn't solve the problem. Verse 3 says, but those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins, because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's not just that they didn't do a very good job or only partially solved the problem. According to verse 3, it's impossible for the death of bulls and goats and other animals to deal with sin. And that's why Jesus came. Because those sacrifices were like a shadow of the real thing. They were like a signpost. If you imagine the cross with a shadow going, reaching back in time, those sacrifices were a shadow, a kind of picture, a, a, a signpost, if you like, pointing forward to when Jesus would come and deal with sin properly once and for all. They were a signpost pointing forwards to Jesus there on the cross. Because if you think about it, what do animals know about sin? I know some of you love your animals, but I hate to, to break it to you, but they are not human beings. They, they can't have a relationship with God. They're not made in God's image. They don't have a, a soul. They don't have a spirit. They are just animals, as nice as they might be. And animals don't understand what sin is. They don't have a knowledge of right and wrong. Morality means nothing to an animal. Maintaining true moral and spiritual values isn't something an animal worries about. All an animal worries about is where it can poo and where it can eat. And that's pretty much all that goes on in an animal's brain. And when they were dragged, those sheep and goats and, and cows and bullocks and so on were, were dragged kicking and screaming by the priests to the altar to be sacrificed to God to make atonement for sin. They had no idea what was going on. They didn't understand the, what, what was happening. They didn't understand what the sin was that had been committed. They had no idea how God felt about the sin that they were being sacrificed for. They didn't understand why God would have to judge them and judge sin. So how then could the sacrifice of animals ever really satisfy God? Those sacrifices were just a temporary solution that pointed forwards to Jesus and the infinitely superior sacrifice that he made when he died in our place on the cross. So why was Jesus' sacrifice on the cross infinitely superior to that of the animal sacrifices offered by the priests in the, in the tabernacle and in the temple. Well, unlike the animals that were offered, Jesus did know about sin. He was utterly sinless himself, 
and his conscience was never once affected by even doing one tiny thing wrong. He was completely and utterly perfect. There was nothing wrong with Jesus in any way. But he saw the evil and the horror of sin as no other human being has ever seen it. And he grasped the reality of it in a way that we never will because he was God in the flesh. And he was looking at human sin from God's point of view. He was surrounded by it in a way that must have been horrific to him, in a way that sin just kind of brushes off us. And sometimes we get upset by it, but generally we just kind of get used to it. Jesus never got used to sin. Jesus was horrified and disgusted by it. Because he was God come as a human being, he understood how God in his holiness felt about sin as no other human being could possibly understand it. For Jesus living on this earth would be like me moving from my nice caravan on the, on the farm into the pig pen and actually bedding down with the pigs and living with them. This world must have disgusted and repulsed Jesus because he was completely, utterly pure and holy and set apart from sin. And he understood perfectly what God's will was for him. He knew it was to deal with the sin that he saw all around him, that he was surrounded by. And as he eventually died there on the cross, the Bible says that he actually chose to become your sin and my sin. As he hung there on the cross, he became your sin. He became my sin. He didn't become a sinner. Jesus never sinned. But he became your sin and my sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus never sinned. But he actually became your sin and my sin. So Jesus' knowledge of sin is completely unique because he knew sin as one who was utterly holy, one who was completely pure, one who was completely righteous and perfect. Jesus, if you like, got into the filthy pig pen of our lives and got covered in pig muck as he made it possible for our lives to be cleaned up. To clean our lives up, he had to get filthy dirty. He exchanged our filthiness our wretchedness, our stench for his perfection. He became filthy dirty so that we could become completely clean. So Jesus' sacrifice was able to achieve what all of the thousands of animals could never achieve. He took the punishment for sin as an atoning sacrifice, a sacrifice that turned aside God's wrath towards us and turned it into favor. And for all those that come to him in repentance and faith, their sins can be removed and washed away, pressure washed away, completely gone. And they can be made perfect and they can be made holy. A gospel is amazing, isn't it? It really is good news. It really is the best news this world has ever heard. What happened to the people then for whom those sacrifices were offered? If they weren't really able to deal with sins, what happened to them? What happened to the people who lived before Jesus died on the cross and offered animal sacrifices instead? Well, the animal sacrifices certainly didn't pay the price of sin that was committed by the people under the old covenant. But the sacrifice of Jesus has. Because he offered his sacrifice in the power of the eternal Holy Spirit, the benefit of Jesus' sacrifice applies equally to the past, the present, and the future for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus. And although he offered himself as a, as a substitute sacrifice at a particular point in history 2,000 years ago, because God is outside of time, there's a sense in which Jesus' sacrifice was and is timeless. There's a sense in which it took place outside of time because God exists outside of time. And so his sacrifice is able to be applied to all those who genuinely trusted in, in Jesus to deal with their sins, whether they lived before or after Jesus died. 
And those who lived before Jesus died, were gen- who were genuinely repentant of their sins and were coming in faith to God to deal with their sins as they came and brought their sacrifices, they have had the, the death of Jesus applied retrospectively to their lives even though at the time they were only offering animal sacrifices and their, their kind of understanding of what they're doing was hugely limited. They don't have the benefit that we now have of our knowledge looking backwards. And they perhaps didn't really understand a great deal of the concept that the Messiah was coming and that these animals were a picture of the Messiah. But in a simple faith, knowing that God had made provision for them, they came and brought these animals. And it was a temporary way of connecting with God, of symbolically saying, I want my sins forgiven. And so God is able to retrospectively apply to their lives what Jesus did on the cross for them. But that doesn't mean that every Israelite in Old Testament times who offered an animal sacrifice for sins is covered by what Jesus did on the cross. There are unfortunately many Israelites, perhaps probably the majority, who looked on the offering of a sacrifice just as a kind of means of paying a fine for something they'd done that was bad. When they were a bit naughty, they'd go and pay the fine by having an animal sacrifice. They had no intention of repenting. Having paid one fine, they would happily go out and repeat the same sin, which, you know, with the idea that if they were caught, they would just go and offer another sacrifice. And their sacrifices were basically, in their eyes, just a license to carry on sinning. And as a result, God obviously never accepted those token offerings of animal sacrifices. God didn't retrospectively apply what Jesus did on the cross to their lives. And many of them offered their sacrifices simply to try and impress other people, to try and look religious and and look superior, particularly the Pharisees. We see that in, in, in the Gospels. They were just trying to strut their stuff and virtue signal, if you like, and say, look at me, how religious I am, and so on. They weren't repentant. They weren't true believers. And they certainly are not covered by the sacrifice of Jesus, and they're not in heaven today. So when Jesus came into the world, he came to do God's will, which was that he would deal with sin and offer himself rather than allow the animal sacrifices to continue. In verses 5 to 9, the author quotes from Psalm 40, and he says that Jesus has fulfilled these words when he became a human being. And he attributes them to Jesus. This is what he said. First, he said, sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. God is always more pleased with obedience rather than a sacrifice to deal with disobedience. God is always more pleased with obedience than he is with a sacrifice to then deal with disobedience. If, if we were obedient, if the Israelites had been obedient in the first place, then no sacrifice would need to be made. And of course, Jesus was perfectly obedient to God the Father in every way. And that included doing God's will in becoming that substitute sacrifice for each one of us. And because Jesus did God's will and laid down his life as a sacrifice, he's now set aside those temporary animal sacrifices and burnt offerings of the Jewish law, and he's replaced them with himself. Verse 10 says, And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus' sacrificial death in obedience to God's perfect will means that those who put their faith and their trust in him can be made holy and are made holy. And he says the same in verse 14, by one sacrifice, he's made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And he's talking there about those who are coming to faith all the time throughout the world. But what does it mean to be made holy? What do we mean by that? It's kind of one of those Christian words that we kind of chuck around. What does it really mean for us to be made holy? What does that really mean? 
Well, it means that we've been made as completely clean and pure and righteous as Jesus is. That's one way of understanding what holiness means. Our sins have been washed away, past, present, and future. Even this, If you've trusted in Jesus this morning, even the sins that you are yet to commit have already been dealt with, have already been washed away. And nothing we can do or Satan can do can ever change the fact that we have now been declared holy by God. No matter how much we might make a mess of living for God, no matter what we do, once we've been declared holy by God, which happens when we trust in Jesus, then we are permanently holy. It's our new, it's our permanent identity. We are holy ones. We are saints. A saint isn't something we get called or described as by God when we've lived a really great life. A saint is what we become the moment we put our trust in Jesus. And this morning, if you trusted in Jesus, God calls you a saint. You are a saint. You are a holy one. Did you know the New Testament never refers to those who trusted in Jesus as sinners? That is not our identity anymore. We still sin, but we're no longer sinners. Our new identity is as a saint or as a holy one or God's holy people. The Bible uses those interchangeably. And, you know, often I hear Christians saying, oh, I'm a sinner. You're not a sinner. You may still sin, but that's no longer your identity. You are now a saint, a saint who sometimes sins. And there is a drastic difference. It might seem like we're splitting hairs, but there's a radical difference between being a sinner and being a saint who sometimes sins. Your new identity is unchangeable and incorruptible in Jesus if you've put your faith and trust in him. But being made holy isn't just about God pressure washing us, if you like, so that we're completely clean and sinless. It's also about being clean for God's use. Being holy is about being set apart, separated from sin, and kind of set apart for holy living for God, for living and serving God. We're no longer marked and spoiled by sin. Instead, we're clean and pure, and we belong to God so that we can serve him and we can be used by him. When I pressure washed those pig pens, within a few days, they were back full of pigs, making an absolute mess of the place, and it was back to square one. But when God pressure washes our lives, if you like, and and makes us holy through Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, we are made permanently clean, permanently spotless. And then we're meant to be used for a different purpose to the one that we had before. We're meant to be serving God's purposes and only God's purposes. That's what, partly what it means to be holy, to be set apart purely for God. Part of what it means to be holy is to be separated from sin and set apart from God. We're now meant to be dedicated to God and serving only Him. If you've trusted in Jesus this morning and, and have had your sins forgiven and have been made holy for God's service, you're meant to now be serving Him and living your life for Him. That's part of what it means to be holy. So here's a question for you this morning. How are you serving him? How are you giving yourself to God so that you can serve him? Part of what it means to be holy is that we are now dedicated to his service. We're now designed and created, recreated in Christ for a new purpose. And that new purpose is serving God. How are you allowing God to serve you? How are you, sorry, how are you allowing God, how are you serving God as he has changed your life? As you are now a holy person, are you allowing God to to kind of constantly lead you and guide you so that you serve him and serve him alone? How are you allowing God to use you in his service? If, If we've trusted in Jesus, then our new and our permanent identity is a holy one, a saint. So it's our identity, and that is now how God views us. 
It's how the Bible refers to us. But just because God has declared us to be holy, it doesn't mean we always act in a very holy way. Sometimes we can be downright unholy. or Maybe I'm the only person who's like that. But I think if we're all honest, despite the fact that we've been declared holy, we sometimes live in a very unholy way. We don't always live in a way that matches our new identity. We are saints who sometimes sadly sin. But when we do that, it doesn't change our identity. It doesn't change how God views us because Jesus' sacrifice was to make us holy once and for all. It was a one-off event. It doesn't need repeating. God has made us holy through Jesus, and he then gives us his Holy Spirit to live within our hearts to enable us to live lives that match up to that new identity. For sure, we won't always do it. For sure, we'll, we'll kind of always struggle to kind of really match that. But we're now meant to make the daily choice to live holy lives because that's who we now are. We're now meant to make that choice that our behavior should match our identity. We're not trying to behave our way into a new identity. We're saying we have a new identity, so let's make sure my behavior follows and matches up to that. We don't live holy lives in order to be accepted by God. It's because we've been accepted by God through faith in Jesus that we've been made holy. And because that's what our new identity is, we should do all that we can to live lives each day that match up to that new identity. But we don't have to do that in our own strength because we have the Holy Spirit living within us. And verse 15 says this, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. The Holy Spirit living within us gives us that desire and the power to live holy lives that match up to our new identity. Of course, we can, we can say no to that and we can choose to do our own thing, but the Holy Spirit is within us and he gives us the power and the desire to do that. We can make wrong choices. We can ignore the voice of the Holy Spirit. But even when we do that, he is still within us, reminding us that nothing has changed, even despite the fact that we often throw things back in God's face and we often do silly things and we often live, in, we often live more like the pigs in the pig pen rather than the saints in the palace. Even though we do that, the Holy Spirit is within us, reminding us that nothing has really changed. Nothing has changed in our new identity. We don't need a fresh sacrifice for our sins because Jesus has sorted it all out once and for all. It's done. The job is done. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. So what is the appropriate thing to do when we don't behave according to our new identity and, and when we sin? Well, we remember that our sins have already been dealt with. They've been pressure washed, if you like, by Jesus on the cross. And so we confess to God what we've done. We embrace afresh the forgiveness that we already have. We don't need to ask for forgiveness ever again as, as Christians in one sense. Nothing wrong with saying to God, I'm sorry, please forgive me. But actually, we are already forgiven. We never need to ask to be forgiven again. Forgiveness is applied to us, past, present, and future. It is who we are. It is our identity. So when we mess up and screw up and foul up, which we will do, the right approach to do is simply to come back to God and say, I confess, yeah, I did it. I, am, I have done that. And I'm sorry for that. And I thank you, Jesus, that you've already dealt with it. Thank you for dealing with my sin. And once again, I turn to you and I turn to live your way. And we get back on with the task of being the holy people, dedicated and devoted to serving God and him alone that he's created us to be. Jesus' pressure washing clean of our lives was a once and for all act. 
unlike the repeated sacrifices that the priests had to offer and, and make in the temple with the animal sacrifices. Their work was never done, it was never completed, and they could never sit down knowing that it was over and finished. Whereas Jesus, it says in, in this passage, has completed a once and for all sacrifice, and now he sat down at the right hand of God. His work is done. Verse 10 says, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, talking about Jesus, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. And as he sits at God's right hand right this morning in heaven, he waits for the day when he will come again to rule and to reign, and all those that have rejected him throughout history and opposed him in this life will become his footstool. Just like a monarch on a throne in the old days would rest their feet on the, on the footstool in front of the throne, so too Jesus, figuratively speaking, one day will rest his feet on his enemies. It's a kind of symbolic way, it's a picture way of saying that those who've rejected him and have opposed him in this life will be trodden down under him and will face his eternal wrath. Sadly, not everyone has or will accept what Jesus has done for them. In fact, the majority won't. And those who fail to do so one day will face God's justice and will face God's punishment. Because to fail to accept Jesus is actually the same as rejecting Jesus. You might say, well, I've never actually rejected him. But if you've not accepted him, you've not surrendered your life to him and bowed the knee and asked him to forgive you and, and be your Lord and Savior, then you are rejecting him. A person might think Jesus was a nice guy, you know, a, a great teacher, a good example, and so on. But unless you actually bow down and worship him as God and surrender your life to him, you won't receive the forgiveness that he offers. And if a person doesn't receive God's forgiveness, then they're still facing the wrath of God for their sin. And if Jesus doesn't remove a person's sin, then one day they will face God's wrath for all eternity. And that means an eternity spent in what the Bible calls hell or the lake of fire, an eternity separated from God and being punished for sin, being, as it were, Jesus' footstool. But it doesn't have to be that way. And for those who surrender their lives to Jesus and put their faith and trust in him, they have had their lives pressure washed clean, if you like. They've been declared and made holy and perfect and righteous. And we're able then to have this eternal and amazing relationship with God Colossians 1.21 puts it this way. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you what? Holy in his sight, without blemish and free from any accusation. If you've yet to surrender your life to Jesus and accept him as your Lord and Savior, then can I urge you to do so and receive that once and for all cleansing of your life that Jesus offers you and wants to give you so that you can be made holy and have that eternal relationship with God and begin a life of living for God and serving him, which is what you were created to do. Isn't the good news of Jesus, the gospel, amazing? Yeah? Amen. The people the book of Hebrews was written for were being tempted to abandon Jesus and, and kind of drift back into their old lives. And probably none of us are going to be tempted to do that because we're not converted Jews, I, I suspect. But we're all tempted every day, aren't we, to drift away from Jesus in other ways. And instead of living for him, despite all that he's done for us, other things kind of get our attraction, other people, other, other things. 
And sometimes we take our eyes off Jesus and we drift away. We forget how amazing he is. We forget how amazing what he's done for us is. How amazing the gospel, that the good news about Jesus really is. I want to close this morning with the words of Hebrews 12, which we'll look at in a few weeks in more detail. But just to kind of wrap up what we said this morning, this is what it says. Let us fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. If you've never trusted in him, this morning would be a great moment to do that, to give your life to him. If you've messed up and screwed up, the right thing to do is just to come back, confess that, reconnect with that forgiveness that is already yours, and celebrate the fact that you are a holy one. You are clean. You are perfect. You are pure. And then live as a holy one and live a life that is dedicated to God's service. Let's just pause and reflect for a few moments. Just bow our heads. Let me close your eyes if you're comfortable doing that. band are going to come up in a moment and lead us in singing, I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. And then Keith's going to come and lead us as we take bread and wine together to remember the Lord Jesus and what he's done for us. But let's just take a few moments just to bow our heads, just reflect. And if the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you this morning, then don't, don't ignore his voice this morning. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his once and for all sacrifice. Thank you that if we've trusted in you, we are forgiven. You've made us holy. Help us to live lives that match up to our new identity, we pray. We worship you. We thank you for your amazing goodness to us. Our words will never be enough. But Father, we want to bring them to you anyway in the sacrifice of praise. As we sing and as we worship you this morning, we give you thanks for Jesus. Amen.